Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. How about yourself, Justin? I'm uh, doing splendid, all things considering. You know, it's uh, having these interesting uh, ebbs and flows with everything going on. And, uh, you know, there was some time spent at the office and see, things seem to have gotten you know, relatively quote unquote new normal. And, uh, you know, now I find myself back at the home office. So it's, uh, it's like deja vu or groundhog day, however you want to look at it. But, uh, either way, you know, we're hanging in there and, uh, things could be a lot worse. So just, yeah. just, you know, keeping my head up and doing, you know, doing what we do best selling drilling fluids. Sure. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I, I will bring this up. It's totally unrelated to the episode. It's related to previous episodes, but Okay. If you're interested in data analytics, trying to follow some of the COVID-19 data is very interesting because there are some there are some good dashboards. Yes. There's also some very misleading dashboards. Okay. Um, and so some of the criticisms that we might have go all the way back to if you're trying to do this for data anywhere, you know, what is the quality of the information? Um, is the information recorded consistently? Uh, is the visualization relevant to glean appropriate information. Um, And and what you see, I mean, particularly in such a politically charged world is there's enough data to allow you to pick and choose. Uh, And there, you know, some of the debates about how the data is presented, like there's a healthy argument to be had about good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just think it's really important to take a step back. Um, You know, I, I think... And and say okay, I sort of see this for what it is, um, and at the same time, uh, recognize that it it should be subject to criticism. Um, sure. But uh, you know, we we can criticize data without throwing it out as well. So I just thought in our world where we've done this for drilling fluids, uh, it's just interesting because when we found ourselves looking at certain metrics, we sort of argued and then say, hey, we, we just need to make a decision and say this is how we're going to present. Um, we've also tried to be very careful to be forthcoming about why we made that choice and why that might bias your interpretation of the information once you see it. Um, and I just, I keep seeing those parallels. And as we try and figure out if, um, you know, as we see numbers increase and people say, well, the hospitalizations are down or deaths are down or deaths per 100 K are down, you know, whatever metrics people may be discussing, I think there's a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of it ties to a lot of the big data things we're trying to do in the oil field and in, in drilling fluids as it relates to flow line. So, right. hmm. no, that's a, I mean, a very interesting point. And, and I think it's almost information overload. And when you start, I mean, you Google COVID-19, you know, stats, you're drinking from a fire hose. Uh, and so it's, yeah, always question it and, and do your due diligence. And I mean, is there some, is there something, Matt, like a takeaway for, for the audience? Is there a certain platform that you use or, or one that is, is relatively credible that folks can tune into? Cause even myself, I found myself looking at various ones and I mean, any suggestions on that? 
I mean, I think it's tough because if you go in there saying, I want to go make this sound not as bad, I can look at the same dashboard and make a different conclusion. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think one of the interesting, so I'll give an example of something that I find interesting. So Texas Medical Center for the has a very good set of dashboards on hospital capacity, hospitalizations, that sort of thing. Um, and one of the interesting things was I saw a bunch of people saying, what a disaster. The, e, the uh, ICUs are running at 80 or 90%, um, except for they're always running. Like a hospital's a business. They don't want to have 50% extra beds all the time. Sure. Um, but, and early on, what we saw was a percentage of the ICU occupancy was fairly low. So let's say we have 1,000 beds, 200 of them were COVID-19 patients. And you say, okay, well, that's that's a lot of your overall capacity, but when you consider elective surgeries have stopped and other things, um, there doesn't seem to be a problem here. And now, you know, I look at this stuff every day now, I sort of fixated on it, but now you're looking at about half or more than half of the phase one ICU beds are COVID-19 patients. And so you're saying, okay, well, there's a lot more, we know there's a lot more positive cases, we see that there's a lot more people in the hospital as an overall percentage of ICU beds. Um, and we know there's a finite number of ICU beds, certainly a finite number of healthcare workers to look after these folks um, that we don't want to overwhelm. And so it's like, okay, that's, that's cause for alarm. But folks could see it two different ways and say, well, ICU capacity, there's still, there's still beds available. Phase two and phase three, there's still room. So we're not, we're not sunk. Not hmm. untrue. I, I guess, uh, you know, the right. point I'm trying to make is you, you can dig deeper and you can, you can make two different angles at that in that we have bed space, you know, people can still get infected and we should go about our daily lives. Another says, well, we see this trend where I'm seeing more and more ICU beds occupied by COVID-19 patients. That's a problem. Um, and, you know, there's other metrics you go through there. You say, hey, there's, there's not much to worry about here. Um, and so I think all the dashboards have information, but all the dashboards also have limits. Um, right. I think in the same way, when someone says, oh, uh, you know, there are now 50,000 cases in Texas or what have you. Okay, well, Texas is a big place with a big population. Is 50,000 good or bad? Right. Um, like, so all that being said, think hard about your data. Don't just look at one set in isolation and think critically. Mm. No, that's a great point, Matt. And and it goes back to, like you said, to any data set you look at, including drilling fluids or you know, any type of drilling data or any data for that matter. And uh, it, it's a challenge and, and uh, you know, but it's something to be aware of. Uh, and, and speaking, just one last thing about the COVID thing is I, uh, I'm, I'm really anxiously awaiting my results because I did the antibody testing and I had to give blood to do so at the local fire station, but uh, I haven't got the results yet. But if I get them and I got the antibodies, look out because I'm hitting the streets. <laughs> I have a friend who who thinks he had it really early. His doctor's like, you probably had it, but it was pretty early on in the whole thing. And uh, uh, he's like, I don't want to spend the money to get the test. I'm like, Doug, just go get your blood. Apparently, like that's that's the new angle is if you give blood. Uh, some places will do the antibody test for you. Yes. Uh, blood or uh, golfblood.org or something like that. They called me out of the blue. And anyway, yeah, it, I figured it was, it was worth it because I didn't want to pay for the test. But awaiting the results and uh, I'll report back when I do, Matt. Okay. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's tackle a little bit more uh, 
something related to the drilling fluids world. Uh, and, and something I think is very relatable, especially right now. Uh, and, you know, we spoke a little bit before uh, recording, but, you know, certainly, you know, the, the amount of the demand for jobs is, is not quite there. And the supply obviously is, is far greater, um, which turns into, you know, people either having to take different types of roles, shifting from maybe it's a certain part of the country to another, maybe it's, uh, you know, just your, your total responsibilities are changing. So there's certainly a transition that a lot of people are being faced with uh, to, and, and, and that may be challenging. And then even on the drilling fluids world, we have folks that, you know, from, from went from the office back to the field and, and it's, you know, something where they were maybe comfortable in that role 10 years ago, going back to that, things have changed. Uh, you know, their skill set and, and their, you know, their leadership skills and how they deal with, with people is different because you're dealing with, with just different levels of, uh, of the business. And so I, you know, you brought it up and I think it's worth the conversation. So uh, you know, with that being said, it's all about transitions. Um, how would you, what, what other examples do you have like different transition that people may be experiencing right now in the oil field and then maybe just drilling fluids specifically? I think, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many different examples. You, you've already, you've already shared a couple, right? People going back to the field, which in some ways may be easier because it's kind of back to what you know. Um, but what we do see, uh, you know, there are a number of companies and AES is not an exception where we've said, look, you know, you're, you were a mud engineer, but we really, we really value you. We think things are going to get better and uh, we want to, we want to keep you as part of our team. And uh, so what we're going to ask you to do now is go work at the mud plant. Um, can you go work at the warehouse? And um, it's, it's obviously a, it's a, it's a big change. Uh, and it's, it's I, I think those, um, I, we've seen folks move from operations to safety. Uh, I think you're seeing a lot of on the drilling side with, with customers. I think we've seen a lot of folks moving from big international projects to, uh, land, uh, you know, mm -hmm. deep water to land, that kind of thing. Um, you know, for me personally, uh, I, I changed jobs from a very large oil field service company where I was specializing in reservoir drilling and completion fluids where a lot of the wells had AFEs of a hundred million dollars um, to go from that to uh, unconventional land drilling. Mm. Uh, and granted I'd done some of it before, but totally different ball game. You know, it was one thing to be drilling a well in, in 2007 on land in, in Texas and then come back, you know, in 2017 and start talking about it. Uh, think of all the change that happened. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I'll personally say that, you know, when, when James, our vice president called me, um, my big thing is I didn't think I was qualified to go back to do something like that. Um, I, I really, I, I was nervous about it. Um, and, uh, I'm really glad that I was able to make the change because I love it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think, uh, so I, I think that's part of it is, is just when you have to make those changes, yeah, so some of them are tough, especially if you really liked what you were doing. But I also think that um, if you can just kind of reframe your mindset, um, there could be a lot of really positive things that come of it that, you know, um, things happen in mysterious ways, right? Yeah. Uh, 
No, so. and I think you hit it on the, on the head is its mindset and an even perspective. And uh, to give an example from from my experience, uh, you know, I had, uh, you know, t- talking about transitions, um, I didn't go back to, I went back to school after working drilling rigs. And so that was a major transition for me, but more relatable to maybe folks now is actually, so after school got worked in the office and then uh, I actually wanted to go back into the field once I moved into the U into the U.S. Uh, to go run mud to to gain that field experience in the U.S. because I had it a little bit in Canada, um, but you know after spending a couple two three years in the office and and you know sort of seeing you know having my sights you know continuing to advance in that then going back to the field as a mud engineer uh, it, it was certainly I had I had a shift in mindset and um, it was ta- it was challenging but. Uh, the opportunity and the experience that I got was, was great. And, and so it actually helped, you know, to me build a stronger foundation. And so I would encourage anyone out there that if you're in a position that, you know, you thought was good and you were, uh, you know, on the fast track to moving up and then all of a sudden you got, you know, uh, you know, moved back to the field or in a different role that you maybe weren't really wanting, um, you know, if, if the company's willing to move you around and keep you in certain roles, uh, and this, Matt, you, you mentioned this, it's because they want you. And and so you can actually take it as a compliment and use that opportunity to better yourself. Uh, and, and it's a humbling experience too. And we all need that every once in a while. Uh, you know, so it's, it's having that right now, um, you know, think it's, you know, kind of goes back to the cliche saying it could be a lot worse. And so would you rather go back to the field or would you rather be sitting on the sidelines? Uh, collecting those stimulus checks, which probably weren't nearly as good as what you had making when you had a job. And so uh, it's, it's, it's the mindset, like you said, Matt, and, um, but there's certainly some challenges, Matt, and, 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 and I'll, uh, you know, punt this back to you, you mentioned going from what you were comfortable with and doing well at with the reservoir and the completions going back to the unconventional saying, eh, I'm not sure if I'm qualified. And there was some doubt, maybe some hesitation. What, what were some of the challenges that you had uh, from that perspective and, and maybe some things that, sh- that helped you overcome those and, and gain the confidence. I mean, I think, you know, part of it was even not understanding what being successful looked like. Mm. Um, you know, a new role, uh, where it was, uh, I don't know what the expectations are for me, so I hope I'm doing a good job. Um, I don't want to annoy my boss asking for feedback when I'm really just learning the ropes. Um, and so I think there can be a fair amount of anxiety as far as, you know, what does success look like? Um, and you know, one of the things I asked, uh, you know, the job I have now, I obviously interviewed for and, and I asked, uh, as an interview question, what would you see as a, what, what would be some things you would see, consider success out of this role? Um, like whoever takes this job, what do you, what do you think? would define you define as successful. Um, and there weren't a ton of specifics, but it was at least an idea of, okay, this is sort of, I understand what the people who are going to evaluate me think, um, or, or would cast a vision for what I'm supposed to be doing. Hmm. Um, and you know, sometimes it can be as simple as if, you know, if it's operations, well, we don't, that we never have delays or we never have this issue or that we get more efficient. Um, And so I I think that's, you know, expectations. Then I think another part of it is how are decisions made? Um, 
you know, I, I think uh, you don't want to step on anybody's toes when you're new at a role. Um, even when there's, we know so-and-so is the boss, but um, do they, do they directly want to be involved in every decision or do they want you to work more independently? Or is there really somebody else that kind of lean on to help make decisions? Um, and, and so, you know, that can be fairly, you know, fairly scary. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I mean, you always see those organizational charts and they're there for a reason, but at the same time, um, I mean, Justin, I, th- I think even working with some of our customers where we sometimes aren't sure because it could be more than one person that, that really has a final say. And can we get all the stakeholders to agree on something? Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point is understanding who's the ultimate decision maker. And, 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 you know, when you ask a question of, Hey, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Or, Hey, AES is recommending that. I mean, you know, do you, you CC everybody or do you just ask one person? And so, I mean, that's just a very small example, but yeah, it's understanding, you know, who the decision makers are and who do you go to for, you know, implementing, you know, different ideas or, you know, make decisions. Yeah. All that can certainly change drastically when you're used to a certain structure, you know, that you've had for the last however long and then changing that, uh, you know, figuring all that out and and it, it, it could be tough. And, and I think it comes down to just asking the right questions. Um, you'll, you're going to get great answers if you just ask the right questions and have the humility and, and uh, enough to ask. You know what I mean? I think a lot of people just assume and they don't want to put themselves out there. But oftentimes, some of the most simple questions will have some great outcome to where you can really avoid <laughs> some serious heartache if you just they say, well, if you would have asked, I would have told you. You would have been fine. You know? Sure. I'd, and I think there can even be in that initial phase, um, you know, I've, I've stumbled across this. So, you know, I, I think we all argue that our jobs touch everything. But, uh, you know, on the marketing side of things, certainly we feel like our brand is represented everywhere, whether that's safety, whether that's operations, wherever. And, and you know, we're very conscious of that. Um, and, and that means working with other folks. And sometimes there could be situations um, where I'm kind of used to just doing my own thing. Um, and I've had to stop myself and other people have, have been kind enough to remind me where I've had to say, you know what, I, I know this company and I know how things work. Um, but because I'm working with somebody new now out of respect for some other manager who's, who really would want to at least know about it, say, look, out of respect for your position, even though, you know, uh, just out of respect for your position and you as a professional, I want to let you know that I'm doing this um, and kind of see how they respond. You right. know, no, I don't report to you. You're not my boss, but that's not what this is about. This is about respecting what you do and recognizing that something I do, uh, you know, there's a touch point there mm-hmm. um, and I don't want you to feel undermined. And I, I, you know, more than anything, I'd love to have your support because that's really how this works. Most definitely. Um, but uh, it's, especially if you're moving around in the same organization, you sort of think, you know, who the, the um, decision makers are, it can even throw you off a little bit and and you may upset somebody unintentionally um, because you think you know how decisions are made. But when you get into the very, the little day-to-day stuff that you're being asked to do now um, as a participant in a group, for example, um, you don't want to undermine anybody or, or make them feel like their position isn't appreciated. So yeah. Um, and, and, and be willing to have the conversations. I mean, sometimes a little bit of, um, you know, challenging conversations are ones that you don't want to necessarily have. Uh, again, the, the return on that is, is far greater than, 
what what would have happened alternatively. So uh, yeah, it's definitely something that that folks really need to key in on, uh, and and being patient, right? Like it's you know it's one thing to go from one role and 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 back to another one and thinking, okay, I gotta be a rock star right out of the gate because if not, then who knows what's gonna happen. But the fact of the matter is, is is it takes time to get back into the swing of things. And so just having the patience and ultimately if you're working hard and you're putting in the effort, no one's going to fault you for that. It's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, I don't, I, I bring it back to the football analogies. You know, my coach always said, you know, I don't care if you make a mistake, but make it going a hundred miles an hour. So if, if you're working hard and you're getting after it and you make a mistake or you do something wrong, people are more than likely going to say, Hey, look, that's okay. Here's where you messed up or here's where we should have maybe done things different. And, and away you go. So, uh, you know, coming out of the gate, flying on all cylinders sometimes can often lead into, uh, you know, it, it just, you can't be patient is, is basically what, what I was trying to say. And so, um, but I think a lot of people, you know, at our level certainly understand that. Um, I want to tie it back a little bit more towards the drilling fluid aspect. Cause I think, you know, a lot of obviously folks out there, my engineers and, and, and folks within the drilling fluids world, um, can probably relate to something that, that, you know, you brought up uh, recently was, you know, obviously, well, right now, oil and gas drilling specifically is very slow. Um, offshore has been slow for, you know, quite a while. We're seeing a lot of people integrate, you know, offshore folks with onshore folks. Uh, so Matt, and you've probably dealt with this more than, than myself, but can you speak a little bit about what we're seeing um, and, and, and trying to integrate these cultures, these mindsets, and maybe the technical aspect of that and, and what you're experiencing and some of the things you can speak up on that? Yeah, you know, I, I think there's a few things. I've, I've stumbled across them myself, myself and, um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, the first thing I want to say is, is if you have a different, I mean, the whole thing we talk about, diversity in whatever, education, background, uh, regional experience running mud, whatever it is, you bring a lot to the table. Um, and so you may come from a deep water rig that was running at, you know, $700,000 a day. Um, and you can probably have some good ideas for a land operation. Um, both are trying to move quickly and safely. There's, there's a lot of things, but obviously there's a, there's a dramatic difference in resources and priorities. Um, and I think one of the the people that struggle with this the most, um, uh, I think are the one are, are folks that come in, especially if they're, and it, it goes both ways. Granted, we don't have a bunch of land folks moving to deep water right now. Um, but maybe, maybe it's happening. Maybe we've got one listener and this helps, but, uh, hmm. you know, deep water has this abundance of resources where someone comes in and says, Oh yeah. You know, the solution to this, we've had this same problem, you know, and, and with well-worn stability, and so what we need to do is we need to do well more strengthening. So let's bypass the shakers. We're going to add 30 to 40 pounds per barrel of graphite and nut, nut plug and calcium carbonate. And we'll just drill right through this sucker and then pressure up and, and, you know, validate that. Um, and, and then we can run some logs and, and, uh, you know, it'll all be good. Um, and that solution may be perfect for an area offshore where money's there and the, you know, huge circulating volume, that sort of thing. Um, it could be a problem actually to try and do that on land. It could be a very expensive, embarrassing thing, honestly. Right. Um, but the other part of it is, could you say, Hey, have you tried out, 
I've, you know, we did this wellbore strengthening thing, uh, not sure if it fits exactly, but it, it really helped us in, in deep water. Maybe it's something we could bring to land that's not very expensive. You know, maybe, maybe find a way to, to make it match. Um, I think that abundance of resources problem is, uh, you know, I've been laughed out of enough rooms asking for, you know, core samples and other things. It's like, no, we don't have any of that. And you're not going to get it. And the last <laughs> yeah. time, you know, the last time that type of log was run was probably the 40s. And you know, we don't have it either. And so, you know, maybe it's published somewhere, but good luck. Right. <laughs> um, it never hurts to ask, but I think expectations is everything where, you know, kind of demanding certain things um, or just demanding, you know, hey, we really need to do this. You say, uh, you know, or have you done this before? Has this been part of a conversation? So I, I think kind of turning that into a, from a prescription to a question, uh, a, a, a leading question. Yes. Um, I think on the other side of it, land, you're so used to having very limited resources. You're so used to just trying to be resourceful that uh, you forget to ask. And it may be that you, you know, let's say we have a drilling engineer from deep water um, who maybe isn't as stingy and, and believes in kind of the value add prospect a little bit more than just cheap, cheap, cheap. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to go ask them, hey, could we try this? Or have you considered this? And could I make a proposal to you? Mm -hmm. um, so I think too much resources and scarcity of resources, I think, can really limit good con innovative uh, conversations, be it technology, be it even just a technique, drilling. Um, you know, terminology, shoot. Uh, I heard somebody talking about uh, drilling um, out in West Texas and talking about taking water flows and performing a top kill. And mm. I can guarantee you a deep water drilling engineer or mud engineer would freak out if you start talking about performing a top kill. Um, What's a top kill for those who might not be familiar? Well, basically, I, I mean, that's the part I, I'm not even quite clear with respect to on, on land, but, you know, basically just trying to pump heavy fluid up the backside to stop, stop from flowing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, there's different terminology for that, but if you thought that in, in a deep water environment, for example, we don't, if we're taking water flows for, for, first of all, it doesn't happen very often, but the other part of it is you're going to kill the well. You're not going to have, you know, you might introduce managed pressure drilling or bring in some other equipment, but um, it's not okay to just try and fight it and get out of the hole and accept it for what it is in a deep water operation. Sure. On land, especially in an area where you've drilled a million wells around it, you know exactly what's going on. Um, there, it's different scenarios and it's different terminology, quite honestly. Um, yeah. And so I think, I, I think it's just one of those, when we talk about some of those things, it could be even understanding, making sure that before the person starts screaming at you that you understand, we may be getting lost in our words here. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, I mean, other things, you know, in the mud world, I love it when we get some of our lab guys out in the field. Uh, um, but there's always kind of the story of going up to a hand and, hey, add, you know, two and one eighth sacks of this material and just getting funny looks. Right. Um, like, hey, that's that's not really how this works. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I think those can be. Uh, uh, big things. I think, um, you know, yeah, these are all any role, but, but 
even on the, uh, you know, in deep water, there's a ton of planning. You go to land and, and, you know, a lot of the wells are very similar. We don't do, we don't, it doesn't take six months to write up a mud program. Right. Um, so understanding that there's expectations, documents need to get turned around quickly. I need to close out wells very, very fast. This wasn't a 90 day well that we're closing out. This was maybe a 20 day well. Um, and just understanding that, uh, you know, you might not feel rushed or it might not be the most important thing on your plate in one environment and in another, it's everything. Yes. Um, so I think, uh, I think, you know, in, in the mud world, uh, seeing that, but also seeing the opportunity for, um, uh, you know, getting it, getting the idea from somebody else's shoes. If you, if you go, one of the things I love about our mud engineer training program is that our trainees have to work in the warehouse before they can go on a rig. Yeah. And I think it's really cool just because you get to know and respect the other warehouse workers. Um, then you go out to the field and hopefully you have some friends and you respect what they do as opposed to, Oh, warehouse screwed this up or nobody's here. You know, mm -hmm. it's, you could, you could go, you, you could go call somebody and say, Hey, you know, I know this isn't normally how you guys work. Is there a problem? Is there something, you know, can you help me here as opposed to just, yelling at somebody for them not getting you something in time. Yes. Um, no, I, I can attest to that. I mean, I, I went through the actual very first uh, AES FMI mud school back in the day. And, um, you know, we were, we ended up having to spend, I think like three or four days in Bowie and mm -hmm. at, at our warehouse up there. And um, yeah, it, it, it was eye opening. and granted it wasn't, I mean, the Barnett wasn't, you know, going crazy at that time. Um, but it was busy enough to see like everything, you know, this is not, uh, you know, like an Amazon warehouse where robots just do everything and pump out product and onto trucks and away you go. Like there was a lot of things happening that, uh, I think a lot of folks didn't quite understand. And then, you know, just, just, just the day-to-day -day operations that are involved in, in the paperwork. And so, uh, it, it, it can often be frustrating as a mud engineer, you know, having a certain level of expectations and, and maybe the warehouse doesn't meet your expectations, but when you put yourself in their shoes and maybe you've seen it or you've done it, it it's certainly the way you approach problems. And, and maybe when they say, Hey, can you give us a, a, enough heads up? Like that goes a long ways. And, and being able to understand that and seeing it firsthand sort of shifts your approach, or at least it did for me on, on where, and, and just the level of respect that I had to make sure I did what they were asking. It wasn't because they just wanted to make their lives easier, although it did, it made my life easier in return. And, and so I think, you know, I, I would agree with you on that is, is having, you know, if, if, if you're say in a position where you have to go to a warehouse for a couple of weeks or you, or they say, Hey, look, you know, we don't have a rig for you, but would you be willing to would you be willing to do this? Go to the warehouse, you know, help those fellows out or, you know, ladies and, and guys out for, you know, whether it's a few months or whatever, embrace the opportunity because it will not only help build a relationship with these, with, with the people that work there, but that'll help give you an understanding. And, and then, and then you can teach them stuff along the way as well. Cause a lot of the people in the warehouse are maybe aspiring to be mud engineers and, and, and you can, you know, tell them what it's like and teach them, you know, show them the ropes and maybe some, tricks of the trade that you've learned being on a rig for so many years. And so 
there, there's a lot of value going back and forth and, and having the, the experience of, of either going, you know, just shifting around and, and taking on different roles for even short period of time. Yes. I mean, I, I think it, it definitely makes you better for it. Um, and I, I think even we talk about the warehouse a lot, just because I feel like there is that, where's my mud? I need my mud or I need my product. What, what's taking so long? And, you know, there's part of it where it's like, oh, if you were the only order we had today, of <laughs> course you would have it. But, you know, there's that. And, and then, um, you know, there's the idea of, wow, there's an awful lot of there. There's a lot of documentation that's required. Um, you know, we're asking people to do, you know, multiple jobs. It's not that there's one guy or gal standing around waiting to be told to go mix, do your mix or, yeah. you know, get your load ready. Um, there's a lot of moving parts. And so if you can come to respect that more, then like you said, you can be very forthcoming and say, Hey, look, I understand this could be a let up. Let me make sure I have that, you know, that work order in and I'll actually call them and make sure they see it and have it. Mm -hmm. Um, and that way there's no delay there because I know sometimes they don't see it or it goes to the wrong, it goes to the junk folder, whatever, you know, any of those things. (laughs) Um, and you, you sort of, you know, you know how to keep the wheels moving and address problems. And, and I know for me as, uh, someone who's, who's moved into, uh, a manager's role when I've had to do those things that other folks do, it's kind of one of those, I'm like, man, we need to find a way to make this better. Right. Um, and everybody just sees it as the way it is. And so we, we, you know, you don't get the resources or the opportunity, but when you get that awareness, say, okay, well, what else, what else can make your guys better? You know, what, what else can we do to make your lives better? Right. Um, we want you to enjoy your job and we don't want you to be doing mundane tasks if we can get you out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a funny story. My, my uncle used to work for, uh, a very large automotive company. Um, and all of the executives got a new car every two years. And um, w- everyone would always talk about how miserable it is. If you ever bought a car, you may not always have the best experience. Um, I've had bad and less worse, I would say. But, um, <laughs> you know, it's the haggling. It's the, the you know, all that stuff that's just so stressful. And it's a big, it's, it's expensive and it takes a long time. Well, none of the senior executives at this automaker had any idea what it's like to actually buy a car. No because kidding, yeah. part of their compensation package is to receive a brand new vehicle every two years delivered to their driver. Hmm. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's one of those is kind of like undercover boss or something. Like if only yeah. I had some idea. Um, and so I, I think it's, it's even, even to those of us who say, oh man, I'd never, never end up doing that. Even, even visiting and asking questions can make a, I respect our our facility so much more just because I've physically gone there and 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 talked to folks. Yeah. Um and working alongside the those folks for a little while and you know at the very least um I think it's going to make everybody for better both uh, both the folks you're working alongside and and you know you go back to a rig or whatever hopefully uh it leads to you helping them do a better job too. Yeah, most definitely. And 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 a lot of what we're talking about too is not only uh transitions within the oil and gas in industry is, is transitioning to other industries. And I think that, you know, sure. that could be a full another full another topic, but, um, regardless, I think a lot of the same ideas, um, and, and sort of suggestions that we had, uh, would apply. I mean, I know one of, 
one of my close customers um, up in Oklahoma was a drilling manager, you know, for years, worked at a bunch of different companies, had a solid resume and a great reputation. Now he's working for Amazon as a, as a district uh, operations manager, you know, managing logistics. Yeah. Talk, you know, ex Marine goes into the oil field and then goes and starts working for this big tech company. Like I can imagine the transition that someone like that would, would face. And so, you know, I think in saying that transitions are going to continue to happen. We're not out of the weeds with, with, you know, the challenges that we're faced right now as an industry and in every industry for that matter. So um, be nimble, be flexible and, and have a good perspective. Uh, it, it's cause it's, it's going to continue to happen. And so um, just in, embrace the change if, if you can, uh, Matt, that's about all I had. Any closing last words for uh, everybody? Two thoughts came to mind. Uh, one was uh, some advice I got uh, years ago. Um, I was really at a crossroads, um, and I met my dad. Had a friend who um, worked in drill, directional drilling for a long time, um, and transitioned over from a service company to go work for an operator as a specialist. Mm. Um, and I thought. I didn't think I had enough experience, but I at least want to play it out because I'd been approached in the past and turned it down and that kind of thing. So like, I want to say this is probably eight years ago. Um, and, uh, so went to his office, we met and, and he said, you know what, if you do end up doing any of those things where the new guy and you're a little bit different, um, he said, find a sponsor. Hmm. And I I said, okay, what, what does that mean? So, uh, you know, if, if you hire on, um, and obviously somebody has made the choice to hire you on, or somebody has brought you under their wing, um, whoever you're reporting to, ask them to introduce you to the team hmm. and explain what you're going to do and how you fit in. Um, and he said, the, you know, the reason is because, you know, this sort of, um, he, he said it was one of the most important things for people to um, respect and appreciate that I wasn't there to take their jobs. I was there to help. And that I had a specific area where, where I was going to work. Um, and I, I thought that was a really, like, that's, that's always stuck with me. Mm. Um, and then I, I think the other thing is, uh, especially, um, I think a lot of us have taken pay cuts. A lot of us have, have had to take roles that we thought we'd, I don't know, move past is the right word. Um, it, it can, it can be tough for morale, but you know, it's, it's the nature of the beast. Um, but, uh, the other part of it is don't, don't let that get in the way of, of being the best at whatever you're called to do. Um, it will open doors to other things. Uh, and so, I mean, I don't know if I've ever shared this, but, um, uh, you know, Justin, I go, I go to Romania probably every other year. Well, probably won't be going back anytime soon, but, um, uh, but I work a lot with, with folks over there who are in recovery, um, mm-hmm. and I, I support an organization, uh, there's a big drug addiction problem there. And, um, one of the big challenges is there's a lot of people on the streets with no education. They get cleaned up and they need a job. No one will hire them. You know, very few will hire them. Um, and the guy that, that runs the outfit, uh, he, he says, you know what? Nobody expects anything of you. It's, you know, it's hard to even get you a job doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so whatever I get you, I need you to do it better than anybody else around you. Right. And then the opportunities will come. And the story he uses is there's a guy who uh, 
started out, he got him a job at a car wash. He was the dude that washed the tires. And then he got put in charge of the team because he was so diligent, worked so hard that he got put in charge of the team that was washing the cars at one. And then he moved up as kind of a manager of the car wash when the owner wasn't there. Um, There And then he worked his way into the service industry. Um, and now, and I've, I've met this gentleman, uh, he's over 400 people at wow. doing the, over the hospitality services at one of the major international hotels in Bucharest. Um, no education, uh, you know, a lot of challenges associated with long-term drug abuse, um, but just was the best at every little position and, and ultimately found himself um, in a, a very prominent position. Uh, and Mm. so I, I think that, you know, be really good at washing tires. (laughs) No, that, that's a cool story, Matt. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I I really can't top that. So we'll, we'll leave that one. And, and, uh, you know, with that being said, everyone, we really appreciate the support. Uh, hopefully everyone out there is staying safe. Uh, I did want to read a review and, and, and Matt, I, I, uh, I take blame for this. I normally like to read the reviews and, and give uh, folks a shout out, but uh, the most recent one we had was from Bucky GB uh, says, thank you for continuing to put out greasy content. Even though at the moment my rig is my rig count is down to zero. I still continue to study my trade. Y'all's podcast is a big part of that. Uh, so whoever Bucky GB is out there, uh, this was in May, but again, I'm a little late to the game, but I, I certainly wanted to give him a shout out. So thanks for the support. Uh, and every, you know, Matt, we're up to, you know, uh, hundreds of listen, uh, hundreds of downloads and listens per episode. Uh, and we don't have nearly that many reviews. So for all the, you know, supporting listeners out there, take just a brief moment. If you could, um, tap the five stars. And, and if you have even a few more minutes, uh, just write a quick review that that would really mean a lot to us. And with that being said, if you have any other questions, you can hit us up at the Flowline Podcast at aesfluids.com or reach out to us on LinkedIn. Uh, with that being said, everyone, we really appreciate it. Have a good one. Thanks. Stay safe. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of the Flowline. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.